I'm Jesse Thorne, host of Bullseye, inviting you to a live taping of my show with my pal, actor and comedian, Paul Shear. It's June 13th at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at laist.com slash events. On Inheriting, Bao Trong was born in the U.S., but he longs for Vietnam, a country his father left behind. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. So how does he tell his dad that? Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. From the Moment Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez. There are only four cities in California that run their own health department. Long Beach, Pasadena, Vernon, and Berkeley. Now West Covina wants to be the fifth. We'll talk to the LBC to hear why having health department independence is worth all the work. Plus, the pandemic has pushed L.A. restaurants to the brink, and now a new Angelino food scene has emerged out of necessity. It's all ahead on Take Two. I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn. It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian school teacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. One event can change a family for generations. I'm Emily Kwong, host of a new podcast from LA Studios called Inheriting. It's about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. Join me for an immersive storytelling event at the Crawford in Pasadena. It's June 27th. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up, how banana trees in California could help fight fires. That's right. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Bananas. Fighting fires. That story's just ahead. First, though, to a fight over public health. It's rare for a city in California to run its own health department. I mean, that's a task usually left to counties. But since the start of the coronavirus, some municipalities are looking to split off on their own, largely to avoid county-mandated health measures and the subsequent economic hardship. Now, one of those is West Covina. The city council there voted earlier this week to move forward with a plan to separate from the L.A. County health officer's jurisdiction while retaining some department services. The consensus is that L.A. County provides not the services of the caliber that everybody would like. That's Mayor Leti Lopez Villado. That's from Tuesday night's special council meeting. And she went on to say that city health departments have much faster response times. But really, how easy is it for a city to run its own health department and what are the benefits? Well, Kelly Calapi knows a lot about that. She's director of health and human services for the city of Long Beach. Kelly, welcome to Take Two. Thank you. All right. So right now, almost all the health department related headlines have to do with the pandemic. And I bet COVID-19 response has taken over much of what you do. But let's uh, zoom out for a second. What's the full gamut of work that falls to a local health department like your own? So our health department, so we are a health and human services department. So we also have homeless services and the housing authority aligned within ours. Uh, Generally, a public health department includes a strong focus on surveillance and epidemiology, environmental health, uh, clinical services around HIV and STD, tuberculosis, uh, as well as prevention efforts, um, all the community health-related work that we do around diabetes and uh, obesity, uh, safety, and things like that, a strong focus on data, data analysis, and many other direct services like WIC, Black Infant Health, and, and many other Uh, many other programs. So we operate about 40 programs within the city of Long Beach um, right now through our department. So pretty much anything that the county does, you guys are also doing in Long Beach. That's true. Yeah. Now, okay, Long Beach, though, is still part of L.A. County. So what's the relationship to its health department, if any? So we uh, we operate independently. We have our, you know, their own jurisdiction and and authority uh, to make the local decisions. Um, There are some funds that come through L.A. County uh, that then they disperse to us. Those are things that come through CDC and other. Uh, But generally within the city, 
Uh, we do coordinate. We are in a lot of conversations together, uh, but we operate independently. Independently. Okay. Now, compared to others, Long Beach has uh, received some praise from Governor Gavin Newsom for its vaccine rollout. How did your health department in Long Beach approach things differently than uh, L.A. County? Well, I think there there are a couple of things. So first, when the vaccine started coming out, we started looking at the different risk levels within the tiers that we were allowed to vaccinate in. And so we moved um, a little more quickly around and, and um, around the areas where we saw greater risk. So we focused very much on the age 65 and older, but also understood that that our um, our restaurant workers and food service workers who the grocery store workers um, that they had a lot more, a lot of direct interaction and that we wanted to make sure that we reached out to them. So we haven't gone through the process of going through all the different, you know, an entire group Mm. before we move to the next. Um, We continue to vaccinate um, still within the tier set by the state, but, but at multiple levels throughout uh, given the vaccine that we have. Would you have had the option to do things differently than, than say the County or the state? We can't do anything differently than the state. The state sets the okay. base criteria, uh, but we do. Uh, we have moved differently than the county has. In, in what way? What's where's the wiggle room between uh, the city and the county? So we make their own decisions. So, so for instance, in the during this time of the COVID pandemic, the state sets. Um, the mechanism for the ability to move tiers and, and openings. And um, so they have established that as a county or that, that it's only the county uh, where that can be selected. So the county is in purple tier. Um, so we're in purple tier and we can open only as fast as the state allows. Mm-hmm. But we could be more restrictive than the county um, or we could open within that same tier more quickly than the county does. So that's in terms of opening. And then in terms of the vaccine, uh, we chose um, because we are uh, we are much smaller than the county. Uh, we were a little more nimble in the ability to set up large scale vaccine sites and others because we have a lot of localized uh, relationships already built. Um, you know, with we have a convention center, we have a community college, we have a state college. All of those things really have helped us to be able to move forward uh, the testing pretty quickly and also the vaccine. Yeah, and that leads into what I was going to ask you next, uh, Kelly, because that nimbleness seems uh, like uh, it would be a significant success for, for the city of Long Beach. And, and operating independently, I would imagine, helped that nimbleness. I think, I, mean, I, I think it does. I think, you know, the localized, the localized relationships the ability to move very quickly, Uh, all the practice that we've done in terms of all of our public health emergency work in the past um, has really allowed us to to move quickly and it has worked. Uh, The county, you know, is large, um, but they have, uh, they also have a lot of different capacities that we may not have. They can, you know, they have um, the ability uh, throughout many different communities to fund at a different level and to, and to do larger scale access. Any other advantages, Kelly, that maybe we can't see to having a city-run health department? Well, I just think uh, when you are a city, you're very much engaged with your community partners. You're engaged with your local council members. You're engaged with so many people um, that allow things to move more quickly as long as you've taken the time to really build those relationships and to practice the response rates and things. I think people are so focused on COVID right now that they're forgetting how much else public health does. And um, while there are a lot of benefits, uh, it's also, it's a big, it's a big deal to have a city health department. There's a lot of administrative pieces. You have to, um, you have to be approved by the state. You have to be engaged in the, in the contracts at the federal level. We run over a hundred contracts and grants to be able to fund the work that we do um, throughout. So I think everybody's focused right now on the flexibility, on the nimbleness, but there, it's, uh, there are a lot of things to, to, and a lot of regulation and focus and expertise that it takes uh, to run a public health department. Talking to Kelly Colopy, Director of Health and Human Services for the City of Long Beach. Uh, Kelly, any drawbacks, though, now to being on your own? Any resources or expertise a city can lose by being on their own? Um, I don't think that there is a mechanism necessarily for losing, uh, but it, you know, as I was just talking about, there are many resources that come through state and federal levels um, that you have to be a qualified health jurisdiction to be able to access. And then it's the ongoing negotiation at a more local level to be able to access those resources. Uh, and then unless the city wants to completely fund its health department, it takes a, a really strong focus on fundraising and management. So I think it's a, 
yeah, it does allow for a lot of nimbleness and it, and you can get a lot done, but you have to have a lot in place before you're ready for that. And so I think as people are considering the possibility of its own health department is to understand that for us to get to where we are now, to be able to move quickly on this nimbleness and this flexibility mm-hmm. has taken years of work to put into place to allow it to move this direction. Kelly, when it comes to... Um talking to counterparts on, on, on the county level, on the state level, and maybe even on a, on a larger scale, you being the, the person that runs this health department for this city on your own, is it easier to have that communication than, say, a city that doesn't and is trying to reach out for help? And, you know, again, because I, uh, I participate um, in a number of different organizations and associations, so I have a lot of direct access to other health department directors, uh, to the State Department of Public Health, to the County's Department of Public Health, and others. So that is, it's an ongoing conversation. So mm-hmm. it does help in those conversations, and it does help in terms of access and understanding what the next steps are um, and, and the decision-making and where things are going to go. So that certainly um, does work in our favor. You know, in L.A. County, I'm sure you know, we have 88 cities, 88 different cities. Uh, what would the concern be, Kelly, if, if we were to have a big, giant patchwork of individual city health departments? Well, I know at the at the state level, they're considering us all the county. And so they really have grouped, you know, the, the city of Pasadena also has its own health department. We've both had health departments for a long, long time. And so when you have a patchwork, then you're looking at your different resource levels. And in many cases, a regional approach actually becomes a stronger approach. Um, and, and so and, and it is a coordination. And I think that the more that you would have a lot of smaller um, health departments may be difficult in the in the ensuring that there's a regional focus, um, then we start to parse out the the dollars that are available at the federal and state level, um, so that and that you don't have the full strength and the full capacity that you would otherwise have um, to uh, for services beyond something like COVID. Back to West Covina, Kelly, for a second, because West Covina said that they will not be at the level of Long Beach, the, the city you're in, by the summer, but they plan to provide services uh, responsive to community needs. Do you think that's a, a realistic goal when really they're starting from scratch? I think it depends on what are the services the community needs. Um, and then, you know, what is the key focus that they that they want to do? There are certainly um, other cities within within the county who operate um, some health services and, you know, they're engaged and, they, and they've been able to work with local community partners around mental health and other. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to provide more localized services, um, but understanding that to be, uh, to be recognized as a public health department, you have to offer a certain level of service and funding um, to be able to operate uh, in, in that space. I think it might be difficult um, to start something and be in full uh, in full motion by this summer. Yeah, maybe not during a pandemic, but when, when we all get over this, maybe that would be a better time to start. Uh, that's uh, Kelly Colopy, Director of Health and Human Services for the City of Long Beach. Kelly, thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you. The pandemic has affected every aspect of our lives, especially when it comes to our kids' education. It's even trickled down to the application process. With less than a week left before a key deadline, the number of California high school seniors applying for financial aid for college is down 10 percent compared to this time last year. KPCC reporter Jill Replicle tells us what's at stake. Linda McGee, the college counselor at Downtown Magnets High School in L.A., has a singular focus these days. It's to whittle down the list. I call it the wall of shame. Of the school's seniors who haven't yet completed the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or FAFSA, or for undocumented students, the California DREAM Act application. These applications can unlock tens of thousands of dollars in grants, loans, and scholarships for college. Most students qualify for some form of financial aid, and low-income Some students can often get their college education paid for entirely. So this year, McGee is using any means possible to get students to fill out the application, even texts and calls to a student's personal cell phone. I harass them until they're like, oh, my God, okay, I'll do it. Just get off my back. And they respond. This year, at least 78 percent of her seniors have already submitted their financial aid applications. Even in a year with no life-altering global pandemic, Helping high school students transition to college takes intense, sustained support, especially for students who would be the first in their family to go to college. 
Sometimes, McGee says, it takes a two-hour conversation just to get a student to shake off the idea that they're not college material or that they can't possibly afford it. If in their family, college going is not like a given, they could talk themselves out of it. One step where it's easy to lose future college students is applying for financial aid. It can be daunting. In normal times, families might bring their tax returns and other necessary documents to a weekend workshop where they could get help applying. This year, applying for aid can get stymied by ludicrous problems like this one. Students whose parents don't have Social Security numbers, and McGee estimates this is the case for up to one out of every five seniors at her school, they can't file their FAFSA application electronically like most students. They have to print out the signature page and mail it. But almost no one has a printer at home. And of course, they don't have stamps. It, it's, it's crazy. The ability to mail a letter, the ability to print from your house, these are privileges. The people who create these systems don't think about that. The overall 10% drop in financial aid applications among high school seniors, that number hides big disparities among schools, similar to the pandemic's health and economic impacts. FAFSA applications are down 14.5% among seniors at low-income high schools and down 16% at schools largely attended by students of color. You might be saying, what if students are just planning to take a gap year, maybe work a bit and then go to college? That's totally possible, but statistically, it often doesn't happen. The more time you spend out of college, the less likely you are to return. This is Audrey Dow, senior vice president of the Campaign for College Opportunity. You also may be thinking, can't someone make a good living without going to college? Definitely. But consider this. Almost all the job losses in California during the current recession have been among people with less than a college degree. And over their lifetime, college graduates earn about a million dollars more on average than people with just a high school diploma. I would say a college degree is really an insurance policy for students to weather against future unemployment, to weather against poverty and instability moving forward. And that looks like everybody. Each week, McGee, the college counselor at Downtown Magnets High, meets on Zoom with the college peer counselors she oversees. They're sort of like her agents in the mission to get seniors to fill out the FAFSA. 17-year-old Julia Yu and the other peer counselors seem to have adopted McGee's strategy of relentless nagging. Julia talked about one student, a guy who's one of the smartest kids in school, but until recently still hadn't finished his financial aid application. And since I noticed it, he was in my math class and I asked him every single math class, oh, did you turn in your FAFSA yet? And he was like, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. I was like, oh my gosh, turn it in. And he finally turned it in. Wait, he did? I think he did. He said he did. One more student that McGee can cross off the wall of shame. Covering Pathways to Higher Education, I'm Jill Replogle. I think we maybe tried 101 ideas to try and fight fires here in California, even prevent them. I mean, we have to. The fires happen all the time, and when they do, they usually are terrible, and the results are devastating. But how about this idea, a moat of bananas? That's right, a moat of bananas. That idea is getting some traction. We'll find out how when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye, inviting you to a taping of my show with my pal, actor, comedian, podcaster, memoirist, Paul Shear. Hey, Paul. That's me. Hey, Jesse. I am so excited to join you to talk about my brand new book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma. We're going to have a great time at the Crawford on June 13th. Come on out. Get tickets now. LAist.com slash events. How do LA is your connection to Los Angeles? Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. 
Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. One of the big issues we've returned to over the years and quite a lot more recently is how different industries have handled toxic workplace environments and also issues of discrimination, specifically around race and gender, especially in newsrooms. We've been going through our own reckoning here at KPCC, and now it's spilled into the world of podcasting. Earlier this month, some accusations were made against the host and lead reporter of the popular Gimlet-produced podcast, Reply All, that's resulted in both of them stepping away from the show. For more on what happened and what it means for the industry, we turn now to Nick Kwa, host of the LA Studios podcast, Servant of Pod, and our go-to guy for talking about all things podcast. Nick, uh, welcome back. Uh, I, I suppose it's a pleasure to be here, in a way. <laughs> oh, thank you, Nick. Thank you. But it's first, we're first live, so there we go. We're we're breaking new ground. All right, so the background on this is uh, very layered. So to start, uh, these uh, two people we mentioned up top, the host and reporter of Reply All, started a, a miniseries called The Test Kitchen to talk about this exact issue that we're talking about, how the media has dealt and not dealt with toxic workplace dynamic. Nick, what specifically did this series tackle? So this series, uh, which was called The Test Kitchen, was supposed to dive deep into one of the more public stories of reckonings in media workplaces that happened last summer. Uh, The downfall, basically, of Adam Rappaport's Bon Bon Appetit. Uh, And I should say there were a lot of these reckonings that took place uh, last summer. It took place in the backdrop of the George Floyd protests. Vulture has a whole list about these various reckonings in the media industry in particular. Um, And the fact that we're here today talking about this uh, means that we're seeing more of it play out into the new year. So the Test Kitchen specifically sought to focus on the specifics of this one elite, glossy prestige media workplace. Mm -hmm. And when it released its first episode on February 6th, uh, it set up a story about power imbalance, uh, in-group, out-group dynamics, racial inequity, pay disparity. um, And they they kind of wanted to use this story as a way to talk about like power structures and organizational sort of structures more generally. Okay, sounds good so far. Then uh, what happened just weeks into the series launch? So shortly after the series uh, debuted, uh, Reply All itself became embroiled in a scandal of its own. Uh, It happened quite quickly, and it started when a former Gimlet staffer named Eric Eddings, who is Black, uh, published a Twitter thread accusing the Reply All team, and specifically the founding co-host PJ Vogt and longtime senior staffer Suruthi Pinabaneni, who, by the way, was hosting and leading the miniseries, mm-hmm. uh, of basically having engaged in antagonistic behaviors in the workplace that more or less mirrored what exactly what was being reported in a miniseries about Bon Appetit. Uh, that threat kicked up uh, a social media firestorm, and within a few days, both Vote and Pinamaneni would depart from the show permanently, though not from the company itself, I should say. And as we learned this morning, the test kitchen itself will not be completed as a series. What kind of uh, things were they accused of? So Eddings accused the team in general, but Vote and Pinamaneni specifically, of contributing to, quote, a toxic dynamic at Gimlet that was near identical to the Bon Appetit culture to begin in the miniseries. So the substance of his accusation is largely tied to a union push that kicked off within Gimlet in late 2018, early 2019, before they were acquired by Spotify. Uh, and it's my understanding that that campaign led to a pretty divisive environment within Gimlet. Um, and there's just a lot of ugliness associated during that time, and I don't know, possibly after that. People took things seriously. Um, Eddings talked about how sort of he sat down with, with Vote and tried to explain about what uh, how hard it was to be a person of color at company, how he felt discriminated against, and Vote being semi-management, just not wanting to hear him. Um, mm. He talked about being called uh, a piece of something yeah. by Benimadani. Uh, there's just a lot of ugliness here. Okay, so it sounds like Vote has uh, acknowledged his mistakes. Uh, what has he and Pinamaneni said about this? Well, the same night, it was announced that both of them were stepping away from the show permanently. They also uh, issued apologies on Twitter. Uh, it's you know pretty standard fair stuff, uh, recognizing their failures of, in their behaviors, their stances, how they wielded power at the time. Uh, but I should also say that Vote had previously sent, uh, before the Miniseries series went out, he had previously sent out an internal email, basically telling the staff that, like, Reporting on the show made him realize the error of his ways and that he now stands by the union. Um, but that is the extent to which we've heard from them publicly since uh, last week. Now, Spotify owns Gimlet, uh, but though it seems like uh, this predated that acquisition, what is uh, management at Gimlet and at Spotify, what have they had to say about how they're going to handle the situation? 
Honestly, I haven't said much publicly, specifically on this matter. Uh, I think we're at a point of the story where the focus is specifically on the union bargaining process within Spotify. And there are actually multiple concurrent uh, processes going on right now. Gimlet is one, but, but Spotify also owns The Ringer and Parkass, and both those shops are also in a, in a unionizing process. And when I check the sources on the Spotify site, it's largely along the lines of we're still looking into it. Uh, and to be fair, Gimlet has gone through quite a bit of change since early 2019. Yeah. Uh, since being bought, they've brought in Lydia Polgreen, formerly of the having posted lead that division. And it's my understanding that's more structure been, has been sort of placed in since then. But I should also say one more thing. Missing from this narrative so far uh, are the Gimlet co-founders, Alex Bloomberg and Matt Lieber. They, this happened when they hit it management, um, and their place in the story has not been scrutinized yet. Now, Nick, I, you know, I alluded to newsrooms all over reckoning with race and discrimination in all forms. Uh, you know, the New York Times being a, the, the biggest, probably, example uh, of, of last year and into this year. Uh, how often uh, are stories like this, how long have they popped up in the podcast world, if at all? Well, they're popping up with some frequency now. As you've mentioned, uh, we just sort of came off the caliphate story, which yeah, culminated yeah. Or a couple of weeks ago in the departure of a producer, Andy Mills. And early this week, actually, uh, we learned that Slate has put Mike Pesca, the longtime host of The Gist, on indefinite leave for debating whether white people can use the N-word. Um, so it feels like we're seeing this pop up more, op- uh, more often, but I think there are a couple of interesting layers to consider here. Uh, the first is that a lot of the people that we're seeing kind of being at the center of this, these problems, uh, they all seem to come from public radio, which is oh, so wow. which is kind of feels like a power and culture problem flowing from point A to point B. Hmm. Um, I think another sort of element here is that a lot of these places that that uh, we're seeing going through reckoning, there's a hip, there's an element of hypocrisy, right? Like these are places that's supposed to report on the bad things in the world and stuff, and and they put themselves out there as people of social good, and so. I think that kind of puts them in a position to be sort of more reckoned with, more you know, with yeah. more consistency. Um, and there's there's other sort of lighter elements here of like race and power. Pinamanini is not white; she's South Asian, and so there it opens up the story to a broader conversation about power and organizational structure that should be considered here. You know, Nick, not that uh, traditional media organizations have handled this uh, perfectly, uh, but I wonder if the startup nature of the podcast world might make these places maybe more vulnerable to incidents like this. I mean, are, are there some of these outfits big enough to even have a, a human resources department, for example? Yeah, I've been thinking about this, actually. And and I think I've come down along the lines of, like, I'm not so sure if that's the right way to look at it. Um, this happens everywhere. This can happen everywhere, big companies, small companies. And I think, like, when it comes to a bigger company, I think we, this, it might be the opposite, right? Big organizations with big human resource departments have the capacity to hide it better. I think what mm. we're seeing with podcasting specifically, um, and the New York Times is a bit separate from this, is that, like, there's more fluidity in being able to have the power structure be challenged, have management be challenged, because it's like not super big. Like it's a different story if we're talking about iHeartMedia, which uh, super big and then there are, you know, it, it's less sort of fluid in being able to sort of take on its narrative. Um, but I think, I, I, yeah, I don't think this is unique to a, to a startup situation and I don't think this is unique to the podcast world. But podcasts, you know, Nick, they're not the wild, wild west anymore. It's not like it's it was five years ago. You, I mean, this is now a, almost ubiquitous part of our lives, uh, podcast. <laughs> so it's not like uh, they're they're on an island somewhere, right? No, not at all. It's we, it is all part of the same, uh, you know, same constellation of islands that we're all dealing with. And so, again, it, it kind of reinforces the idea that like this, the stuff that happens here happens everywhere else. What do you think is next for this uh, Gimlet Reply All story? Uh, I'm still reporting it out. Um, I know that Reply All is on temporary pause as they sort of quote unquote figure out what happened here. Um, the the immediate next step here is like the union stuff. Um, that is sort of the core of, of the source of tension during this time. And it is still the sort of process that's in play and active right now. And because of that, a lot of sources are, are, are willing to talk because the union process is still ongoing, very sensitive. Mm-hmm. But I think that's where the focus of the story is probably going to go next. That's Nick Kwa, host of the LA Studios uh, podcast, Servant of Pod. Nick, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, moving on. The last four years of fire in California have left us scrambling for solutions, such as trying to figure out how to do more prescribed burns. But what if I told you there was a potential fruit-based solution that could possibly help save some of our communities? KPECC's Jacob Margolis has more. I get a lot of crazy pitches, especially when wildfire season gets going. And back in October, a reputable university reached out saying, hey, 
we've got a professor who has a unique idea on how to use tropical fruit trees to possibly stop fires burning through our grassy hills. I said, that's bananas. And they said, exactly. And I confirmed, indeed, this professor was talking about covering our brown hills with waves of emerald green banana plants to stop fires, which sounds absolutely nuts. So of course, I had to talk to him. We met up at a housing development in Irvine that nearly burned back in October. The hills around the homes still charred. So this landscape, what I would envision doing all the way from literally the boundary of these houses up to the ridge that's above us, I would envision a banana orchard. Bharath Raghavan is a fruit enthusiast and professor of engineering at USC. He says if banana trees had been planted, it could have potentially slowed down the fire and given firefighters even more time to respond. We would have seen the fire come over the ridge, and it would have been mostly grass that would have been burning. It would have come up to the edge of our banana planting, and probably the first row of bananas would have been singed, but they wouldn't have caught fire because they don't catch fire easily. That's a key reason to why he's suggesting banana trees. Think about when you use banana leaves to cook things. Because of the moisture in them, they mostly steam rather than burn. Having hundreds of yards of moist plants around a housing development or homes could change fire behavior in our favor. To vet the idea, I reached out to a bunch of fire experts, and to be honest, every single one of them cocked their heads and said, huh? And then, oh, okay, I kind of get it. The idea of irrigating Planting non-flammable plants like bananas is a great idea. David Bowman is a professor of fire science and pyrogeography at the University of Tasmania, and he says the concept Raghavan is building on isn't new. It's something called a green fire break, where you plant a lot of moist vegetation that fire has trouble burning. It could be banana trees, succulents, or something else with high water content. And Bowman says if we're inventive, we could figure out other green fire break options as well. If this is done well, we could create the most beautiful fireproof interfaces where parks and gardens and orchards and ponds and biodiversity and, you know, really do it well. But it's going to be designed. It's not going to be wild. Bowman says there's been ongoing research in China about the effectiveness of different plants as green fire breaks for some time. But I wondered if any fire officials here had any thoughts about the idea. So I reached out to Cal Fire. Not to say that it wouldn't work, but uh, I do see some flaws in it. Battalion Chief John Hagee brought up a number of concerns, like how well do banana trees grow in California? Well, it turns out some varieties do pretty good, but occasional frost is a concern. Don't they use a lot of water? Yes, and that is a major barrier. However, Raghavan advocates for recycled water, which is widely available. And Heggie brought up the fact that those ideal, always-watered, well-kept banana orchards will need to be kept up long-term. Otherwise, they could end up burning like the avocado orchards he's seen. Avocado groves typically are very resistant to stopping fires. But when they're not watered or there's a error in the irrigation and some of the trees die, then they become a a fire source as opposed to a fire uh, suppressant. While bananas could be a decent option for some fires, they're not going to slow down or stop everything that comes through. The extreme fires we're now experiencing because of climate change have been turned up to 12. David Bowman said he even saw a banana orchard burn during some of the worst ever wildfires in Australia's history. Raghavan agreed with the concerns, but said that we need to consider new options, especially in the face of our climate emergency. We're seeing extreme fires now four years in a row across the state. Something's going to give. Do people move? Do we accept that, you know, it's just evacuation season in the fall? Bright green bananas on the hillside are going to look far nicer than charred hills. Raghavan's next step, he and his colleagues are trying to set up a test plot to put the idea to work in real life. Covering science, I'm Jacob Margolis. You know, when I was a boy, just like Grandpa Simpson, there were an endless amount of stores that I could just linger in for hours. Radio Shack, Borders, Blockbuster, Toys R Us, Sports Authority. Oh, the days of the store where you can just get lost in and sit and just be yourself are are slowly leaving us because now another one, another store has hit the dust. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. 
the journalists of LAist, work for you. I'm Julia Paskin, your host for Weekend Edition on LAist. It is my job to get you the news every Saturday and Sunday morning so you can start your day engaged and informed, even on the weekend. But this place is too big and interesting to stay home, so I'm here to motivate you to explore L.A. from the best hikes to the most interesting events. I'll bring you the stories and the people behind them. L.A.ist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now, the more take two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. Ami Martinez. Just this week, Fry's Electronics officially flipped the off switch on its last 31 stores around the country. The 36 year old retail chain was battered by both the pandemic and the new ways that customers shop. But aside from electronics, the stores were probably most well known for what you saw before you walked inside. Here to tell us about each location's iconic architecture, especially right here in Southern California, we have Chris Nichols. He's author at LA Magazine, who's an expert on Southern California architecture. Chris, welcome back. Hello, great to be here. Now, uh, describe some of the store's entrances, uh, what they look like, particularly the ones here in Southern California. Well, you know, a lot of them were just repurposed, tilt-up, simple buildings or new things, you know, but some of them, they, they went to great lengths to carry the theme all the way from the interior all the way to the entrance, the street, the signage, like in the city of industry, the great gears and levers of early industry. You know, the uh, there's a great, um, uh, there's a Roman one in Fountain Valley. There was a... Uh, uh, there was a uh, Mayan one up in Northern wow. California, Alice in Wonderland, Woodland Hills, <laughs> you know. And out of all so the I, stores, out of all the stores, Chris, and I'm so happy that you're most familiar with the one that I'm most familiar with, and that's the one in Burbank. So what's the history of that store? Right? That's my favorite. Yeah. Burbank is, um, is a 1950s science fiction theme, which has a giant spaceship crashing through an authentic Googie building from 1962 that was called Unimart. Uh, and they repurposed these great diamonds in this this wonderful 50s building into a uh, sci-fi movie theme um, designed by a guy named Eric Christensen, a movie a movie designer, a movie prop designer, who did a lot of work with George Lucas and um, was involved in a lot of his um, uh, ILM and Lucas, his, his ranch of Northern California. And the thing about the Burbank store, Chris, is that it continues the theme, as you, as all the stores, the inside. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff inside that still kind of continues the theme that uh, you're you're somewhere else, or at least if you want to imagine like you are, you're somewhere else. Right. There's a drive-in movie where you can eat food and watch movies and, and all vintage cars. You can go inside of the spaceship next to Gork from the day the Earth stood still and watch TVs, um, you know, test drive the TVs. It's it's awesome. The alien octopus in the Burbank store. That's, I used to love right, staring at right. that thing. Yeah. And the, the Jeep cut in half yeah. by the laser. Yeah. <laughs> it was so yeah. cool. Yeah, like a yeah. War of the Worlds happening in Burbank, <laughs> right? Yeah, all around you. And I mean, you know, and it really puts you in a, in a, in a different place and it gets you excited to go there you want to go check them all out i mean they were all so well done and so thorough and so beautifully designed what's the history of why the stores had interesting design elements in the first place well i spoke to the designer i spoke to eric christensen who said that it, it, it seems to me what he was saying was that it was just sort of um you know like george lucas wants to build this wild ranch in northern california john fry decided he wanted to build these very elaborate stores it's kind of a a whim of this uh wealthy and, exo- and eccentric uh, personality that wanted to build all of these um, crazy stores um, that were, you know, like 50,000 to 100,000 square feet. And, it, and, you know, 20 years ago, they were like a million and a half bucks just for the decor, just for the items. You know, Chris, when my uh, mom and dad wanted to go to the supermarket, I, I didn't want to go. I, I just didn't want to go to the supermarket unless it was Fedco. Then I would then I would go. But <laughs> so what they would do is they'd fold in a trip to Fry's as a way to get me to go with them. 
It, 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 that, and that was the only way. Right? I was just, yeah. yeah. It, it made you want to go in the store if you were a kid that uh, loved running around and pretending that, uh, I guess I mentioned that you were somewhere else. Now, well, um, this, this designer, this Christensen, worked, did, did, helped design Star Tours at Disneyland. So come on. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Now, w- what do you know about any effort to maybe preserve these designs, uh, whether they stay with the, with the storefronts or maybe they're taken somewhere else to be preserved? Well, um, he thinks, Christensen thinks, that they're being disassembled today and he believes there might be an auction and that they're going to be saved by Fry's. Um, so some will end up with the Fry's family and some will end up at auction, he thinks. Wow. I mean, if if they put, yeah, if they put any of that spaceship up for auction, there's going to be a lot <laughs> of people. Chris, I think you and I might be bidding against each other right? to buy yeah. some of that stuff. I mean, what do you think is, I mean, obviously just the look of it is, is appealing, um, but does it harken back to something else maybe in our childhoods that uh, that maybe we know is probably never going to come back? Well, I think growing up in L.A., you're, you're, you you get used to theme environments. You're like spoiled that you yeah. have. You know, you have Knott's Berry Farm and Disneyland and all these wonderful places that are, you know, these, these wonderful world-class themed exciting places that you want to go and, and be in another world for a little while. And, you know, and amazingly, you know, in California, we have this electronic store of all places that also transported you to another world. Yeah, and on the inside too, they also had a very interesting layout. I remember going to the for, for the first time and, and thinking, "This is not uh, somewhere I really have ever been before, or at least seen before." Tell us about the layout and where it came from. Well, yeah, it was really unique because the Fry family came out of the grocery store industry, and ah. so they laid it out like a big grocery store. And actually, the earliest stores had food in them, and you know, up until recently, they had snacks and drinks and waters and and things that you would take while you're you know going home to play video games or going home to to veg out in front of the TV, you could stock up on snacks and things. Um, so they still kept that same idea up until just the end here. And they had so many toys, Chris. They had so many toys that I used to love. I mean, I had to walk out with one, at least. I mean, if I'm going to go with my mom and dad shopping, I might as well get some right. out and of how it, about, right? And how about all the stuff in the checkout on your oh, way that, out? Oh, that's you the best. Yeah, yeah. There was like a long line, a long kind of aisle of things that you could still pick up right at the end, right when you're about to pay, just to right. make sure that you saw just about everything they had. Uh, Chris Nichols, Impulse author. Wise. Absolutely. Author at LA Magazine, who's an expert on Southern California architecture. Thanks uh, for joining us on this uh, memory lane trip. Thanks so much. All right, the pandemic has really put L.A. eateries through the ringer. Many restaurants that have been part of the social fabric of their neighborhoods have been forced to close, some of them permanently. But the thing is, in their place has popped up a new kind of L.A. food scene, one that technically has been around forever, but now is getting a lot more attention out of necessity. Find out what that food scene is when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. On inheriting. To Tuan Trong, his home country is a lost country. What's keeping you from going back to Vietnam? The communists. Uh, I, 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 can't, I can't stand to see them. But his son Bao longs to live there. The very country Tuan fled being homesick for a a place that's never been home. Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. The coronavirus pandemic has altered life in L.A. as we knew it for nearly a year now. And one of those changes comes to the food scene. Now, of course, we know that restaurants everywhere rejiggered their operations to offer more takeout and also serve folks outdoors. But in 2020, cooks and food vendors all over turned to social media to sell their goods from home, a trend that could reshape the way Angelinos eat. That's according to writer Cesar Hernandez, who recently wrote about the changes for Elias. He joins us now. Okay, now I'm curious about the scope of this uh, particular group. Any, any sense of how large this community of home cooks is, and has it just gotten bigger in the last year or so? For sure. I mean, as Mexicans growing up, my tia used to sell, like make tamales from home and then sell them on the street. But this is a very common thing. Like it's not necessarily like a new thing, which is why I wanted to focus on a couple of people who had been doing like selling from home 
prior to this? Yeah, yeah. Let's go back now to uh, March of 2020. That's when the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders uh, were first issued across the state. Uh, one of the vendors that you spoke to was Alan Cruz of A's Barbecue in East LA, who described uh, what it felt like in that moment. It was more like panic mode. Like, what do I do? You know, like I just gotta. I kind of just settled with it. You know, it wasn't ideal, but it worked. So then I got comfortable with it, and I keep doing it. But at the same time, I got to be mindful of my neighbors. So Cesar, tell us more about the immediate impact all of this had on, on people like uh, Alan. So he used to be a pop-up. And at the time, he was selling smash burgers at Boomtown, which is a brewery, which is common for a lot of pop-ups to pop up at breweries. And he got the news. And I think the way he described it was that he heard that the NBA had just shut down. And he hit panic mode. And like he, he was unsure of the future. So he tried a couple pop-ups. And it didn't work out. So he eventually just went back to selling from home because when he first started, he would just do like pre-orders. But now that he's back home, he like developed a website to like streamline the process. You know, if there's any silver lining, it's that, and this is true of, of a lot of these vendors, they have gotten the added bonus of everyone being home and everyone scrolling through Instagram. Yeah. So, And also just the structure of like, now you have a set place and time. Yeah, adapting uh, with the circumstances. Uh, you also spoke to uh, several food vendors operating from uh, their homes in different neighborhoods, as you mentioned. Let's hear from Doreen Nakama of East Los Musubi. So our son has um, really, really bad asthma. And that was one of the reasons that um, I stopped working is because, you know, I was on the reg and like so close to people. And when the beginning of this, it was just so scary. You know, nobody knew what was going on. And so... We're like, we needed that extra income, but in the safety of like our home and for the protection of our family. You know, so there's this old phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, and in this case, for a lot of uh, home cooks like Doreen, the necessity of the moment meant that they had to figure out ways to, to adapt. So how did, how did the pandemic really push these home cooks to go out and sell from home? So I think that the, the biggest ingenuity is like using social media and like creating this pre-order system. And I think Isos Musubi is one of the most, I wouldn't say intricate, but it's intricate in its simplicity. Like, so essentially what it is, is you'll, you'll hit them up on Instagram, you'll tell them what you want to order, you'll see if they have time slots, you confirm payment. And then once you show up, they just drop their, your order either on your hood or on your trunk, and then you you just leave. And it's, it's completely contactless. It's very simple. And... Uh, I actually like admire the way that they did it. There are other people like Vias Tacos in Highland Park who he has a the same thing. It's an it's a pre-order system, but he gives you like a five, I think it's like a five minute window. Mm. And it's just so like, you know, his his grandma's neighborhood of Highland Park doesn't get clogged with like a bunch yeah. of restaurants. Cause I did mention that uh they're getting like the added bonus of like people just showing up. So it can like really, you know, call attention because there's increased traffic. Yeah. And parking's at a premium. I mean, it's, it's LA, right? So you, you can't really find that many places to park in parts of the city. So if, if, if all of a sudden someone that lives next door can't park their car uh, when they come home from work, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. And I think that that's, the, that's one of the biggest concerns for the most part. And in the piece, I called it the neighbor problem. Someone like uh, Ronnie's, Ronnie's kicking, he sells fried chicken and he used to sell out of his house. Um, and he transitioned to a truck, but like he had such a great time cooking there. He, he had like a small concern about the neighbors, but for him, it was just like, this is fun. Like I get to invite people to my home and they get to cook the food that we make. And like for everyone, it's a little different, but someone like Isos Musubi who lives in like a quieter part of East LA, like El Sereno, they're worried that like the increased traffic might disturb their neighbors. So they make sure that they keep to this pre-order system and get the orders out as soon as they can so there isn't any disruption in that way. We're talking to writer Cesar Hernandez, who recently wrote about the pandemic's impact on home cooks and food vendors in Los Angeles. Cesar is at home, and if you're hearing roosters in the background, that's because his neighbors have a bunch of them. Now, your piece also digs into the legality of selling food from home and how some of the laws differ across California counties. Tell us a little bit about that history and where it stands today. Essentially, the history is that there was this bill called AB 1616, which allowed the sell of food from home or prepared from home, but it was only like dried goods and uh, it was hard to make a profit. So I actually spoke to the lawyer who works at this foundation called the Sustainable Economies Law Center. Um, her name is Christina Oatfield and she works out in, uh, in the Bay and she used to sell food from home. At her time, 
at Sustainable Economies Law Center, she was approached by this bread maker to pass AB 1616. And I, I guess to like preface it is there is a lot of interest, tech interest in the burgeoning, you know, home food economy. Mm-hmm. So there are people like this company called Josephine who essentially marketed themselves as like the Uber of cooking. Oh, okay. uh, they approached SELC, which is Sustainable Economies Law Center, to pass this new bill called AB 626, which eventually did pass. And what it what it dictates is that now hot food can be prepared and it allows homes to be considered food facilities under the California Retail Code, which means essentially that like uh, you can't apply for a license, but the thing about it is, and the thing that that makes kind of AB 626 kind of tricky is that like, it's up to the discretion of county. So it's mm. this state legislation that's passed, but it's up to counties to opt in. And so far, only Riverside has has opted in. Only Riverside. Okay. How do how do the home cooks feel about the current restrictions? Then? That's the difficult part, because like there are people who did try to go and like try to obtain a permit. But because L.A. hasn't opted in, so to speak, when they went to go speak to public health officials, they told them that there is no license, there is no permit that exists right now for, you know, for you to be able to sell from home. And Ronnie, Ronnie from Ronnie's Kicken essentially told me that they said, yeah, just keep doing it until someone rats you out. Adam Martinez of of Isos Musubi told me the same thing that he tried, he looked into it, but like, it just doesn't exist. So People are just finding a way. People are just finding a way to keep selling. Like I spoke to Goat Mafia in Compton, and he was saying that, like, we're just out here doing a ghetto, bro. It's just like, <laughs> um, we have a licencia de Dios, you know what I mean? which is just like <laughs> a license, a from, license God. from God. You know, like, this is kind of like a dicho that you say. Yeah, yeah. Now, one more thing, Cesar, because I think we're all wondering what life is going to be like when uh, everyone's finally vaccinated and, and we can go back to, to life somewhat being the way it used to be in, in some ways, how do you think these very creative chefs uh, that, are, that are just adapting to the situation, how do you think all that's going to reshape the L.A. food scene going forward? This was a point that I didn't get to touch on too much, but like the fact that big tech is involved in driving legislation is scary. You know, like the way that, that tech was involved in AB 626 was pretty evident um, in that they they had an interest, but I think that people like this are finding ways to like exist outside of that, and like they've got such a network of support, and I think that that's that will reflect in a few years or in this year even how LA is eating because you know like so many of the restaurants that we loved um, and the talents behind them are starting to go home. So like if any of these people have some sort of influence or like some sort of following most of their audience will follow them home because it's it's unlike anything else but also like wanting to support people trying to do their thing that's cesar hernandez who recently wrote a story for LAist uh, called the pandemic pushed home cooks to up their game and it's changing la's food scene you can read the full story at laist.com that's l-a-i-s-t.com cesar thanks a lot thank you eh? All right, if you missed any part of Take Two today, what are you doing? We're on at two every single day. It never changes. Two o'clock, Take Two at two, but fine. If you missed any part of Take Two, just head to wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA, and that is good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back. Tomorrow at 2, Marketplace is next.